God, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. And I just want to thank you, Lord, that you are so approachable today, that we, we can know that um, you welcome us into your presence um, because of the work that was done on the cross, that kind of confidence um, that just allows us from wherever we're coming, whether it's a place of brokenness or success or failure or sin or addiction or struggle or whatever it is, you are the approachable one. And uh, so now we approach you together as a community to try to dig into your word and let you speak to us because you have the words of life. So we ask that you would meet us in your word in, in the book of Zechariah and beyond this morning as we spend a little time together studying it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, when I was on my sabbatical several, several years ago, I was able to reconnect with uh, a love of mine, uh, which is flamenco music. Um, flamenco, if you're, if you're unfamiliar with it, is a kind of music that grew out of sort of the, 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 the crucible of cultures coming together in southern Spain. It was um, gypsy culture, Spanish culture, actually Jewish culture, and Moorish culture all sort of mixing together. And when I was in my 20s, I was really into flamenco music. And, and back in the day, the number one flamenco guitarist was named Paco de Lucia. So um, there I am on my sabbatical, and uh, I'm reconnecting with this music, exploring it. And I learned that the number one uh, flamenco guitarist at that time was named, and still is named, Vicente Amigo. And uh, I knew that because before he died, Paco de Lucia said, he's the best. He's the king of flamenco music. And uh, I began to kind of listen to Vicente Amigo. And, you know, sabbatical was an amazing time. We went to some flamenco performances. And, of course, if you know my wife, this is very consistent with her. After one of the performances, she runs up to one of the dancers and said, you know, my husband really loves flamenco music. And uh, could you give him a lesson in dancing? So 10 a.m. the next morning, I'm in a studio learning how to dance flamenco. It was, I'm, I'm actually glad you didn't see it, um, but it happened. And, um, and then I kept listening, you know, during, throughout the sabbatical, it was just a wonderful time. There, I had these long stretches in the morning of reading and praying and journaling and processing. And so much of that was done to the soundtrack of Vicente Amigo, listening to this flamenco music that I love. Um, you know, lots of joys were celebrated while I was listening to Vicente Amigo, and lots of, lots of griefs were grieved while I was listening to Vicente Amigo. So it, it sort of takes, you know, music can take a kind of a place in your heart when you, when you give that time, when, when the music is present in precious moments. And I came back, and I had the last week of my sabbatical up along the Klamath River in a cabin. And uh, I ended up, and it, this sounds strange, but uh, I ended up on the shore of the river um, dancing my one flamenco dance to Vicente Amigo, right? Uh, and it was this really special moment for me which sort of encapsulated my time and, and put a period on it all. So I come back to the Bay Area and I'm looking through the SF Jazz schedule and uh, to my utter astonishment, guess who's coming to town? 
Vicente Amigo, right? And so uh, I immediately buy my ticket, and I'm excited. I'm ready to go. Um, I'm thinking of inviting others, but I don't know anybody who likes flamenco music. So uh, I don't want to go and have the experience ruined by somebody asking me questions, right, about (laughs) flamenco music. So I go solo, and I get into the room, and it's packed out with people who absolutely love flamenco music. My people, right? I'm just so excited. In fact, one guy, he kept calling out through the entire performance, and you could tell the performers were starting to get annoyed because he kept yelling things out in the middle of the song, but he couldn't help it. He was just excited to be seeing the greatest flamenco guitarist of all, and uh, I felt the same way. Not a note was misplaced. In fact, the vision of the music that I had gleaned from listening to the albums was now there, present in reality. He played it. You know, you know when you see a performer and they play it note for note, and that's what just you wanted to hear? That's what he did. It was beautiful. He played beautifully. Well, I bring up the story because our text this morning uh, tells a similar kind of a passage uh, story about someone who, uh, who, who is like no other and arrives in a timely moment. Somebody who's like no other and arrives in a timely moment. And this one's not a musician. Um, this one is a king. So his capacity to bring blessing is all that much greater than what even a musician can bring. And we know how important musician we know how important a musician can be. This is next level. This is somebody who not only can make beautiful music, who in fact ultimately created the concept of music, but who can who can bring life back to the way it's supposed to be. That's the promise that comes with this king, the one who will overcome the one problem that is destroying the world in which we live, that is what the promise is that this king brings, who gives hope to the hopeless, who brings grace to the desperate and purpose to the aimless person, one who will have the power to be present ultimately with us in those deepest moments, just like when you're by yourself and you're listening to music and you're having a moment, well, well this one, this king actually is going to have the power to be present with us, not only as, as music, but as, as actually a, a presence of love and grace and mercy in the most poignant, the deepest moments of our lives. That's all of the promise that this king holds. And so if you were to hear that that guy was coming to town, you would be pretty excited, right? And that's the story of the passage we're looking at today as we celebrate Palm Sunday. So um, let's read it, and then I want to provide a bit of context, and then we'll jump into some application, just really a simple application point for us today. This is Zechariah 9.9. We continue to make our way through the book of Zechariah. I was so blown away. I was going to stop, you know, as we came to the end of chapter 8. And, uh, and then I looked, and I was like, well, what are we going to do for, for Palm Sunday? And it was literally the passage about Palm Sunday, which is the prophecy anticipating Palm Sunday, which happened to me next. I didn't plan it this way, but the Lord knew uh, the timing of it. So I thought, we're going to keep going here in the book of Zechariah. It fits right into our Easter celebrations. Zechariah 9.9, let me read it to you. Follow along if you can on the screen, or if you want to pull it up on your device, or if you brought your Bible. It says this, Rejoice greatly, we we heard this already, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Mm, Underline that one. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Now, there are many layers to this text, and so I want to just take a moment to bring it it into its proper context and to sort through those. So, the first layer goes all the way back to 516 B.C. when Zechariah is actually speaking this prophecy to the people of Israel. Remember, they had been scattered because of disobedience. They had returned after their exile to the land. Uh, They were rebuilding the community, the society that they had with the city of Jerusalem. At the center of the city is the temple, which is the presence of God in their lives. That's what they're called to do. But they're underachieving in the process of rebuilding what they had. So God sends Zechariah to speak words of encouragement and reminders to them about the faithfulness and the power of God to be with them in this rebuilding process that they're in. And we don't know exactly how this prophecy would have been fulfilled in the days of Zechariah. Speculation is that maybe they felt on some level when Alexander the Great marched into Jerusalem, that was sort of the first initial fulfillment of that prophecy, but there's problems with that. He probably came in on a horse and not a donkey because he was a man of battle and war. So it would have been a partial fulfillment uh, without there being sort of the final fulfillment of what we see in this text. But what we do know is that it was fulfilled then uh, all those years later. So, so the timing of this, you've got 516 B.C. when the prophecy is given. Alexander the Great around 330 B.C. And then fast forward all the way to 33 A.D. And you have the fulfillment of this prophecy in the person of Jesus Christ as he enters into Jerusalem where he'll be facing the cross and then, of course, the, the beautiful resurrection afterwards. And so let me read that passage for you in Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. We'll put it up here. This is the disciples and Jesus as they're entering into Jerusalem. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, meaning Zechariah, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks 
and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I just loved how the kids were marching around the sanctuary with the palm fronds and everybody celebrating. That was such a joyful celebration to really capture the, the moment and the vibe of what was happening here uh, as Jesus came into um, Jerusalem. And one of the things that I love, and I just marvel at this, it happens over and over again, is how the prophets in the Old Testament, in fact, really the entire Old Testament, they provide for us a kind of a deeper backstory to the events that take place in the New Testament. So the New Testament is not very long, it's fairly short, but so much of the time you can sort of use the New Testament as to give us the storyline of the life of Jesus. But if you want to know more deeply inside of it, you can go back to the Old Testament, you can read these prophecies, and you're saying, wow, this thing that was prophesied back here is being fulfilled in this moment, and, and it's, not just, it's not just that it's being fulfilled. When I go back there and I read the text, I actually understand more fully what was happening in that moment in the New Testament. It's really amazing how this works. And so we can look at Zechariah, written 500 years before Jesus entered Jerusalem, and glean this kind of deeper understanding of what was taking place there as Jesus was entering into Jerusalem. So let's do that. Um, why are the people laying down their cloaks and shouting with joy? Why is this one so special? The text tells us there's four traits that make this person, Jesus, unlike anyone else. His righteousness, salvation, humility, and the fact that he's riding on a donkey. He's donkey born. So let's look. We're going to roll through these kind of quickly. Um, there's so much material, so much meat here. Um, first, he is righteous. Now, to be righteous is to conform to some sort of expected standard. Uh, a scale is said to be righteous, like a scale of weighing things is said to be righteous um, uh, if it's accurately calibrated um, to agreed upon standards so that when you conduct business, the result of that trade is actually fair, right? If you, if you miscalibrate the scale to benefit yourself, then that no longer is a righteous scale. Um, that is an unjust scale. A righteous king, then, if we're taking that simple understanding and extrapolating it to what a king is. A righteous king conforms to the expectations we have of a king. Now, the question of where we get those expectations is, is kind of a deeper one than we have time for this morning, but suffice it to say that God has embedded in every single one of us an understanding of right and wrong. And now sometimes that gets covered over by sin, but Deep inside of us, God has embedded this understanding such that we know when we see a king who is acting righteously, or, or you could extrapolate to, to, to any kind of a leader, you have something deep inside of you, a compass that says, yes, that's right. And Jesus is that righteous king. He acts in alignment with what is good, and he judges according to what is good. And I don't think any of us has ever really experienced this in its fullest. We've never been under a leader 
who uh, lived in this way, who had this kind of character quality that Jesus had. But we've probably had somebody who leans in that direction, who gives us a flavor or a taste, a boss, or, or maybe you had a parent or uh, another leader of some sort who leans in the direction of righteousness. Um, imperfect probably, but at times manifests righteous leadership and rule. And you know when that's the case that the people flourish underneath that kind of leadership. People flourish underneath that kind of leadership. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. So this is a principle of the world. People flourish under righteous leadership, and this king's righteous rule will be ultimately from sea to sea, the text says. He is like no other. Point two, secondly, he brings salvation. And verse 11 adds color to what this means. Go there with me. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So on the basis uh, of, the covenant, of a covenant made in blood, this king will keep his promise to his people, his obligation to them by the covenant, which includes breaking them free from captivity saving them. So on the basis of the, the covenant made in blood, he will keep his obligation to them, which means breaking them free from captivity. Now, um, this phrase is probably obscure to us, a waterless pit. Now, that really refers to a, a cistern, which is a big hole in the ground where water is kept, a dry cistern, a waterless pit. And what was typically uh, would happen is that those dry cisterns would be used as kind of a prison for people. If you were put into a dry cistern, you couldn't get out of it because the walls were steep. There was no way to get out. You were stuck. It was a prison. So that's what happened to Joseph, right? He was put in one of those. And when the Israelites were carried away, when they were scattered, some of them were put in that kind of a prison. They were put in a dry cistern. And so this king is going to break them free from those prisons, and Zechariah and his contemporaries were under um, the covenant that, that was ratified by the blood of animals. That's the Old Testament covenant, which God ratified with them going all the way back uh, into the book of, of Genesis. Um, but 500 years later from the time of Zechariah, when Jesus comes, he's going to ratify a new covenant in his blood. A new obligation to his people, an intensification of that obligation to his people, us, ratified, that means made secure in his blood. This king is like no other. The old covenant was good, but the new covenant is better because it's been ratified in the blood of Jesus. We can talk about that a lot more, but let's go on to the next, what the implication of this, the result, it's kind of mind-blowing what happens next. It literally says, you are now prisoners of hope. So you've gone from prisoner in a cistern, prisoners to the pit, to prisoners of hope. I love that phrase. Uh, if, if you want to spend some time this afternoon, afternoon just meditating on the phrase, what does it mean to be a prisoner of hope? That'd be a great use of your afternoon. Just think through, what does it mean to be a prisoner of hope? There was a pit that imprison you, or maybe for, for us, it's some other circumstance in our life that has us feeling imprisoned. 
um, or especially the way the New Testament talks about it, our sin enslaves us. So there's that usage of this terminology. You were hemmed in or you are hemmed in, you feel hemmed in and unable to move because of these prisons. Now, because of Jesus, you are hemmed in by hope. You are hemmed in by hope. Instead of being confined by walls, you're now confined confined by hope. You cannot wander into despair or despondency or defeatism because now due to Christ, to this king, there is no circumstance about which you can finally or ultimately say it is hopeless. With Jesus, there is always hope. You are a prisoner of of hope because of this king. Thirdly, this person is special because he's humble. And I love the song that we sang about that. Jesus will say the following things about himself. The son can do nothing of himself. I can of my own self do nothing. My judgment is just because I seek not mine own will. I receive not glory from men. I am come not to do mine own will. My teaching is not mine. I am not come of myself. This is remarkable. Jesus Christ lived in utter and complete dependency upon the Father. And that is the picture of humility. And when he marched into Jerusalem riding on this donkey, people could feel, they could experience the humility and the approachability of this king. There's something powerfully endearing about a humble person. When the Israelites rejoiced as Jesus rode in, you know, part of what they're celebrating is that this person is meek and approachable. And it's exceedingly rare with somebody who has power and especially political leadership kind of power like this king has, but he has this humility and perfection. He's approachable. And that means for you, that Jesus is approachable. That as you sit there, as you reflect, reflect on your life and, and the things that might keep you from being possibly in the presence of God, your own failures and shortcomings, your sins, the way you've harmed others, um, the way you failed to act when you should have acted, the list, right, goes on and on. Your, your addictions, your struggles, the list goes on and on. This king is humble. And the, the result of his humility is that he's approachable to you. And the people who were celebrating, they felt that as he was coming in. He's coming near to me. He's like no other. And then lastly, he's on a donkey. Now, we often think about his presence sitting on that donkey as a sign of humility because for us, we in our modern times have this dis- distinction between a horse and a donkey. Horse is cool, donkey is lame. And so here comes Jesus on the lame animal, right? The donkey. So that's a very humble thing to do. But actually, in Jesus' day, the distinction between the horse and the donkey probably had more to do with war and peace war and peace. The horse was the most advanced instrument of warfare in the day. So you think of the cavalry, Alexander's cavalry, those would be like the the fighter jet pilots of the day who rode this powerful 
war instrument, the horse. But when a king would come into his own city riding on a donkey, he was suggesting that he doesn't need to be surrounded with the implements of war. He's coming in because a special season has arrived, a season of peace. Peace has been secured, and he doesn't need to ride on the horse anymore. When you think about Alexander coming in, you know, this powerful warrior on a horse, and, and they would have known about that, right, these people? I mean, they wouldn't have been reading history books about it, but they would have known that this Alexander the Great came in on a horse, this warrior, and now they're seeing Jesus come in on a donkey. I just wonder, right, ah, what that moment would have been like to that powerful contrast between the two. It's easy to start wars. We're kind of seeing that right now, right? It's easy to start wars. The hard thing to bring about is peace. And there's Jesus riding in on a donkey because he's established peace. And it says in the text, his rule will be from sea to sea. Everywhere. This is a king like no other. So on the basis of that, we would say that this is an arrival worth rejoicing over. This is an arrival worth rejoicing over. Connect with some of those arrivals you've had in your life. Uh, you know, probably none of you listen to flamenco music, so Vicente Amigo came and it just passed you by. Um, I'm sorry, you missed out. Um, but you might have a band or somebody that you have just been so overjoyed and all those emotions come in. Or maybe it was a family member who visited after a long time separation and there you were in the airport and you ran towards this person and you wrapped them up and they wrapped you up and, and, and you hugged and it was a sweet moment. Or maybe it was a long lost friend that visited your home. Think about those moments and think about the, the emotional um, sort of... Um, element that goes along with that moment and 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 think about um, how this arrival pulls out all of that and then some kind of puts it on steroids because the capacity of this king to bring blessing into your life is is like no other so there's a political application to this, um, I think if we had a deep sense of just how singular Jesus is, it might tamp down some of our enthusiasm for the temporal leaders around us, right? The presidents in our case, or the other leaders that we have this tendency to place so much hope in because we, we confuse the fact that there's nobody like Jesus. We're longing for Jesus, ultimately. We're longing for the perfect king because that longing is embedded deeply inside of us. And we keep hoping that, that some other political leader will meet the need. And so we get all emotionally wrapped up and committed to people who will never be able to actually bear the weight of that expectation. And that, as we're seeing in our country, has created divisions and all kinds of problems because of the intensity, the idolatry of our love for this political party or that political party that will never be able to meet the need because Jesus is the only one and he's singular. He's the only one who has the traits 
to meet that longing and that desire. So there's, a, there's an application here about our misplaced political hopes and, and how if we really cultivate a deeper and deeper understanding of who Christ is and the singular nature of the kingship of Jesus Christ, it will tamp down some of that craziness. It'll make us more able to sort through uh, and appreciate the negative and the positive of the leaders around us. There's another application here which is much more personal that I want to call out. And this has to do with uh, the expectations that we put on the people around us as well. Again, there is no one like Jesus Christ. And I want to affirm that we need community. We need people in our lives with whom to share our burdens and our joys. I, I called a friend this week and I said, hey, hey man, I, I just, I want to share a few things with you and then I'd like for you to pray for me. And so on Friday morning, I called my, my friend, he's a missionary in, in Tajikistan and um, we talked for an hour and I shared, I just sort of unburdened a few things and then he just spent this sweet time praying for me um, and lifting me up to the Lord. We prayed, I prayed, he prayed. And, you know, it was beautiful. And I thank God for people like that in my life. And I hope that you have people like that in your life that, that when it's heavy, you can call and you can pray. We need, we need people in our lives. But, you know, I said to him, I said to him, I just need an hour of your time. Because there's an aspect to this where, you know, I'm in danger of crossing over into a kind of expectation of somebody like him, a friend of mine, to do more than he can possibly do. He's not Jesus, and he can't be Jesus to me. He can mirror and reflect Christ to me in powerful and beautiful ways, and I desperately need that in my life, but he can't be Jesus to me. There's only one Jesus. There's only one king who can meet those needs. I was reading Psalm 62 this week and it really captured this for me and, and David understood this. He understood this point that I'm making that there is no one like Jesus and that while others reflect and mirror the qualities of Christ in our lives and together we are the body of Christ, not any one person, but together we are the body of Christ, that ultimately it is, it is only the Lord who can meet these needs. Listen to these words from Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Skipping to verse 5. For God alone, you see there's a, he's, he, he's really hitting this hard. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. There are certain key aspects of our spiritual need that only God in his perfection can provide. 
We need people in our lives who mirror in broken ways the qualities that we long for, but if our hopes are in them, then our hopes will be misplaced, and the burden that we place on them will be too great. They can never meet it. But they don't have to, because Jesus has come. So rejoice. Raise your palm fronds. That's, that's what people are saying. Say, all my hopes are in you, Jesus. Laying down their cloaks. Give what's valuable to me to you. My hope is in you, they say. Put your hopes in him. Bring your longings to him. Entrust your dreams to him. God, would you help us? Would you help us in this moment? I know every single one in this room sitting here, out on the playground, in the foyer, listening uh, online, every single one of us is facing challenge, difficulty, brokenness, shattered dreams, longings, etc., etc. And there's this temptation for us to place those on the people around us, thinking that perhaps they will meet those needs. And you're reminding us today that though those people are a precious gift given to us by you, they cannot ultimately be you. You alone are the Lord. For you alone our soul waits in silence. You alone are our rock and our salvation. And so give expression to this longing in our lives. And we're, just, we're each unique people. We're different personalities. We, we relate to you in different ways. Sometimes it's through music and worship. And sometimes it's through prayer and community. And sometimes it's through journaling and Bible reading. And, and all these beautiful tools you've given to us. But Lord, whatever it is that we need in this moment, given our circumstances, call us into deeper relationship with you. You march into our lives bringing your righteousness and your salvation and your peace and your humility and take up residence in our hearts and guide us and lead us as only you can. There is no one like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's so interesting that this king would march through the rest of that week, and then on the night before he was betrayed, he would take bread, and he gave thanks, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Me. You see how all of these prophecies, all of these movements of Christ, they all are fulfilled in due time throughout the course of his life. All the threads of the Old Testament, all these, these beautiful dreams find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And on that cross, he shed his blood, which is the ratification of this new covenant, which means he's committed to you no matter what. You cannot separate yourself from him. He is committed to you. He loves you. He's the king willing to die for you, to give up his life for you.
And then he, after that, blows out his Holy Spirit on the disciples. And so they know and you know, we know that we have God's presence with us in those moments when we need him most. He is present by his Spirit, which has been poured out upon us. This is the God we celebrate. This is the King we celebrate. We rejoice over in this week. So God, help us as we take this simple communion wafer and this cup. We take them into ourselves because that's what you've called us to do. To take you into us and allow you to live and flourish within us that we might live and flourish in the world. Have your way with us in this moment. Speak to us words of truth, things that we need to remember, things we need to know to make us like you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.